other teams doing. I don't really care. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that is that is the ultimate true Yankee approach yeah. to every other team in the game. I love it. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, we'll see what moves we're making. And uh, when it gets, like, close to the season, because it's also one of those, it's so, anyone can make moves. And you just never know. People get hurt right away. Uh, there's just so many weird factors that can happen that it's like, I don't know. I just can't. I feel like, well, you know what, I'll probably start thinking about it more after the Super Bowl. Yeah. It's before the Super Bowl, I feel like I'm, like, very football zone, like, very baseball, whatever. And then once February hits, it's so depressing. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I, I try to live the Super Bowl every year, and my tradition is that the very last second, as soon as that clock hits zero in the fourth quarter, I immediately tweet out just the word baseball exclamation points and <laughs> 10, 15 likes just off that. And it's, it's, yeah, it's beautiful. Um, let me ask you this about Garrett Cole. Uh, are you at all concerned that given that what we've learned about Houston's secret sauce, as it were, for how they've turned their hitters into this? incredible contact machine. Are you at all worried that getting him away from Houston will kind of get him back to Pittsburgh, Garrett Cole, and that kind of inconsistency? Oh, I think the whole thing could be a disaster. Yeah. We don't, I mean, he had a great postseason, and that's what this is all off of. All of a sudden, he's like, the greatest pitcher in baseball. Nobody was saying that before this postseason. It's like, like, there was, during the year, put up, he put up uh, the numbers. It's, oh, he's great. Like, he's yeah. a great pitcher. But it was like, I, oh, my God, these tags stop. Oh, shoot. Oh, no. I went away from the screen. Oh, it's okay. I, I right. still hear you. Okay. Um, you know, it's just one of the, I, you just never know with anybody. I, I, maybe right. that's part of it, too. It's like a cynicism, I think, of being a Yankee fan that I, um, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I just, I never really trust any trades. I never know if it's actually going to work out. Um, I don't know. Any, any good thing that you get too excited about, especially trade-wise. Like, if somebody's homegrown it's like a different thing because you're like watching the process and you invest in them and they're like yours but when you go out and spend big money uh, right off the bat I go I'm, well I mean I've seen it fail so many times and people that should be amazing here and then they're not uh and then other times they succeed and you go well great that's what you're paid to do so yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the, yeah, lesson learned is, uh, the best you can hope for is yeah okay you've filled your contractual obligation yeah I mean, I want him to do really well. I hope he does really well. I hope that he fits in. He really likes your Yankees needed to get pitching. I think they need to get more pitching. Um, so, you know, we'll see. But whenever there's a huge number attached to it, it's also, it's always just, it's the pressure of that. And then also it just becomes the whole like, oh, it's because the Yankees have that money and blah, blah, blah. And it becomes like a whole thing instead of it doesn't doesn't feel like that sort of, you can go like, no, we like just earned this. It's like, well, yeah, we earned it because we have investments and a lot of money and we're based out of New York, but <laughs> it's, uh, it still feels like, you know, that's slightly, I don't know. It's not as fun of a brag. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, I'm sure other people don't feel this way. I feel like right. I also don't know if I can speak at like, there's so many different, I mean, just like anybody, there's so many different types of fans and different types of Yankee fans. And I feel I'm a very fair Yankee fan and I always oh. appreciate other teams. Whereas I know that there is absolutely that like total, and I'm stereotyping like Jersey, Long Island <laughs> Yankee fan that like the second anybody gets a jersey is on the team, it's a big contract, they get the jersey and they're like, screw you guys, we're going to kill you. And it's like, it's so obnoxious. Um, but I know that that fan exists, and I know that's why a lot of people hate Yankee fans. Yeah. You, you sat in the bleachers, right? I mean, you sat around exactly those types. Oh, of yeah. Yeah. But I, I love the bleachers. I, I love the old bleachers. I, I The old bleachers used to be so crazy, mm -hmm. um, the cheers that would go on and the chance yeah. that, like, 
the bleacher creatures that like that doesn't exist anymore and it does feel hmm. a lot more foresty and the ballpark uh it's beautiful but it, it doesn't have that it, it feels a very phony uh you go now it, it feels yeah, my, like my, my opinion of the, of the new yankee stadium and i've i've been to the old one i think four or five games and i've been to the new one a, a few more than that since i lived there for eight and a half years mm-hmm. my sense of the new one is that you were only allowed to have as much fun as you have specifically paid to have at the new Yankee Stadium. <laughs> if, if you paid for $1,600 tickets, then you can have $1,600 worth of fun. And <laughs> the best example I can give for that is on, the, on that lower concourse. That's where they have, like, all of the food options. Like, every, every uh, you know, all kinds of pizza, sushi, steak sandwiches, and so if you pay for that level, then you're entitled to all that, the Yankees decided. If you pay for upper deck seats, you get hot dogs. <laughs> well, but here's what is, this is what's good and bad about it, is that there's that whole section that's like in the middle that you can really like, and people do, is they spend the game not in their seats and walking around. And you can stand in that like standing room only and like get like, you know, they got all the food and like all those beers and stuff down there and like different types of wine. Which is really cool, and I think it's it definitely attracts people to it. But the problem is people aren't in their seat, so you know you find out you, you hear you have a sold out crowd, and you're like you're sitting there watching a game go, and it doesn't feel sold out. And it's like yeah, because people are they're walking around, they're mingling, they're having like an experience, like a a park experience, but they're not like completely invested in the game, completely yeah. locked in. Um, and I don't know, I don't know if that's gonna be something that comes back, and maybe that just goes back to like. MLB's whole thing is like they don't care. They're they're seeing the numbers and they're seeing how much money they're making. Uh, it's a sold out crowd, and if people are walking around, they're buying things. So, what do they care? I, I don't know. It's yeah. Um, I, I think it it really started with those again the, those ridiculous club seats right behind the plate that oh, were started hundred or whatever. And be, when they made, moved into the into the new ballpark, it seemed like the Yankees decided that part of that was they would be okay if most of those seats were empty during the game, as long as they were paid for. And they were okay with the image of showing you every single time when you go to that camera right behind the picture of at least like half the seats unoccupied because they yeah. were still getting that money. And that was, that was the transition for me from uh, the old ballpark where it was packed and insane and crazy all the time to the new one where it's just kind of a playground for the super rich. Yeah, no, it, it definitely, it gives that feel. And maybe that's part of what, I, I get it. Like you're building a ballpark and it's in New York and it's the Yankees. So you want to make it this like prestigious thing. And it was, it was beautiful and it still is beautiful when it's been open. Yeah. But, and I remember almost, I was excited about a new stadium because I was mm-hmm. like, Oh my God, this other one, like, like the, you just felt like you were in this, like, it, it kind of just felt like a, I don't know, like a little bit of like a piece of shit. And well, then it's insane how I kind of, I miss it. I miss like, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. It's weird. It's I miss like the crazy energy of it. Because again, like you, you would walk out. There was a rain delay, and it's like, all right, everybody's in the hallway. The hallway's packed. Everybody's getting beer. There was one game I want to remember. It was a Friday night game, rain delay, and it was like I think the Yankees were losing, and nothing was happening. It was like one of those. It was a boring game, rain <laughs> delay. Everybody is now in the hallway getting drunk, and then the game starts <laughs> maybe like forty minutes later, and now this, everyone is back in their seats. Everyone is wasted, and like the place was rocking, and it was like oh, an unbelievable fuck. game. <laughs> it's like now that kind of goes on. Like there's no like, well, we gotta all go here. Now we gotta all go here. Like it just doesn't exist, and uh, oh. except during the playoffs. But um, yeah, I don't know. I don't. There's. I don't know if there's any way to 
get that back. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, not unless ba baseball in general kind of changes its approach yeah. to what they really want in, in terms of attracting the fans who come to the game. It seems like now if they would have a rain delay in the new ballpark and everybody were to retreat into the concourse, they would all get drunk. It would just be at a wine bar, I think. Yeah, they might not come back. Um, yeah. You know. do, you, do you find that there are people in the bleachers or, or around the ballpark that are trying to put like an extra effort into recreating the old atmosphere, see if they can make up for the fact that there's so many fans who aren't as into it now in the new one? I don't know. No, I feel like, and I feel like I'm guilty of it too. I feel like I go and I don't feel that much like when I'm there. I, I don't know. It's, it's weird. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't even, it's weird. I don't go to that many games. Like people are like, oh, you're a big Yankee fan, big baseball fan. I'm like, one, it's, it's, I, it's so easy to like put a game on at home and do other stuff and like get right. stuff done. Like I see it better. I like listening to the announcers. I like listening to it on the radio. Um, that going to the ballpark, like it, it's something we'll try to do like with the family or like, you know, it's a great like outing kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But I've been there and been like so disassociated with the game. Like I, I'm guilty of it too. And part of me might be like, oh, I guess it's almost like a comedy show. You know, like when there's <laughs> a crowd that's like off and then people come out to you after and they go like, man, I don't know what was going on in there with everybody. And you're like, you know, you were part of that crowd. <laughs> you were part of that. Like yeah. you, but I get it. It's like an energy that when energy's weird, it really does. We all sort of like can fall into it. And then what's great is sometimes you get the one drunk guy that like starts some kind of chant and a rally. And then he starts making people laugh and other people start feeding into it. Um, I don't know if it's that or I've gone to so many in the past few years, the games I've gone to, they have just gotten killed. Like, it's one of those... I saw them against the Astros in July, and they had won, like, eight games in a row, and then we saw Verlander pitch, and they just got, like... They they didn't show up. It was horrible. So, like, that's part of it, too. You're, like, sitting there. It's a hot day, and you're, like, they're not even playing well. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if... if it's not help. Oh, there's only so much you can do that, yeah. that enjoy yeah. yourself. But, yeah, I, I get that, that in order... Uh, to be part of a baseball crowd or a comedy show crowd or anything of that's kind of an activity like that, you got to have the majority of people buy in to enjoying yeah. it in order to really have the full experience. And yeah, yeah. there are days where, yeah, it, it just doesn't happen. Are, are there times where you wish you could like walk up to Aaron judge after the game and just go, Hey, I don't know what was wrong with those 40,000 people. <laughs> you know what? I probably wouldn't be that person. That's right. I'd be like, yeah. listen, don't listen to them, but <laughs> Let us pause here for a second so I can actually open the show officially here. So uh, this is the Three Strikes You're Out podcast, part of the Outsports Podcast Network, episode 12, the Wade Boggs and the Devil Rays episode. My name is Ken Schultz. I am a contributing writer for Outsports. Thank you for listening in, for joining me for the 12 episodes so far. Also contribute to Baseball Prospectus and Cubs Den. The other voice you are hearing is my guest for this week, one of my old New York comedy pals, and I guess technically also Scranton, Pennsylvania comedy pals that we uh, worked together on one weekend there, I think. Megan Hanley is here. Hello. Megan has Hello. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, let me give you your credits real fast. Megan has been seen on uh, Fox, on Axis TV, and at the Laughing Skull and Women in Comedy Festivals. Can be found on Twitter at at the Megan Hanley and Megan with an H because, as Eddie Izzard would say, because there's a fucking H in it. <laughs> yes, I, I feel like I'm never on Twitter, but that is also my Instagram. So and people can you are <laughs> better off if you are never on Twitter, as as well you know it it it, it is a cesspool that is. Decided, we've decided is necessary for all of our lines of work, despite the fact that it runs us into the very worst people who would consume <laughs> what we do. Yeah. Uh, 
right? Yeah, it's part of the, the self-defeating comedy lifestyle that we both bought into. So, hey, uh, and as is tradition on the podcast, a tradition of like all of two episodes now, when I've had Yankee fans on, I like to greet you with your own personal John Sterling home, home run call. And I think I've come up with, with a decent one for you. Uh, let me know what, what you think about this. The, it is high. It is far. It is gone. Oh, Megan Hanley. You already know. She hit that baseball from L.A. to Tokyo. <laughs> that is very impressive. That is good. I think, it's, I think you can fill in for him. Absolutely. Yeah, which, which granted is way too current a, a music reference for John Sterling, but your name fits so well into the Iggy Azalea song that, that honestly, I, I couldn't resist. <laughs> as you're well aware, that any excuse John Sterling takes to sing, he, he will happily take that. Oh, yeah. He's like the Oprah of baseball. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you have a favorite Sterling uh, catchphrase or just one that makes you grit your teeth less when you hear it? Oh, I mean, they're, they're, they're all horrible. Him and Susan are, it's one of those things, they're so bad, but I also love them. Like, yeah. they've been around I, so long that there was talks about somebody didn't renew their contract, but then they got picked up by somebody else. And it was like, oh, thank God. Because it, it's it's weird. Like, they're so annoying, but I really do enjoy them. And he's clearly off his rocker. And then <laughs> half the time, it looks like then Susan goes missing because she'll go down to the field. So all of a sudden, you'll be like, where is Susan? And then you see her on the field and she's like accosting people. And uh, <laughs> they're just, they're hilarious. Uh one that I loved that I, I do miss, uh, the Curtis Granderson one, was the, mm. the Grandy Man. The Grandy Man can. Yes. You know, I can't figure out from the... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one thing you tune into baseball broadcast for, it's Sammy Davis Jr. references at this point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Megan, as, as you no doubt have already heard, is a huge Yankee super fan, and I'm having you on because it's Hall of Fame week, and uh, yeah, jeez. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I should also be stated, you asked me to do this podcast even before the announcement was made. Yeah. Um, I had a <laughs> feeling that Jeter might somehow make it this year. Just <laughs> that kind of special baseball prospectus analysis that I bring to it that gave me a sense that, yeah, he's probably going to be considered a Hall of Famer. So I will start off with this. Uh, the Oddly enough, once the Jeter announcement was made, it seems the only thing that most media focused on immediately was the fact that one writer didn't vote yeah. for him. And uh, my response to that, and I'm going to bring in a cross-sport reference here. I'm going the Jay Cutler route and just giving you a don't care. Uh, do you care? Is, is there any reason to care about this? I mean, uh, I do think it's interesting in a way. Like, I saw it and went, oh, one vote shy. Um, I care less because they, the big talk was when Mo and Jeter retired was, well, especially around Yankees, was, who, is, is there a chance of one of them going anonymous? Not, not anonymously. Unanimously. <laughs> anonymously. I love anonymous, people. actually. It's Mar Mariana Rivera's picture on a plaque and then just name withheld underneath. <laughs> you know who this is. <laughs> <laughs> but that was like the big talk. Will one of them get it? So then it was like when Mo got it, it was like, all right, it's been done. Mo got it. It's great. Uh, I remember when Griffey was three votes shy, yeah. which he went is that somebody saving it for someone else? Like, cause it's so bizarre. It's a bizarre thing when you, I, I don't understand how more people haven't gotten in with a hundred percent votes. Cause there's so many clear cut people that of course are getting in. Uh, it's a very, you know, writers are weird. Uh, all of that is, it's very strange in that sense. So, so the one thing and you just go like, what did they think other people were going to hold out? Uh, 
you know, like then you move past that. It's not a big deal. It's like whatever. But it is. It it does make me think. Like, was there discussion that we want Mo to be the first <laughs> and only one? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's an interesting thing. Um, it it started as kind of a. I don't know when they started noticing that no one had ever been elected unanimously, but it became kind of a self-perpetuating thing for many years yeah. where writers decided, uh, especially before you could call them out online about what their ballot was, writers decided that, well, because Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb didn't get the unanimous votes, uh, we can't let you know a Tom Seaver or a Cal Ripken get in unanimously because they're, they're great, but they're not that level of great. And... Yeah. It, it just became kind of a story created by the writers for the writers yeah. in, in that yeah. way. Like, it gave them a better sense of self-importance. Like, I am the gatekeeper, yeah. and I'll prevent Ken Griffey from getting 100%. And it also, it also creates this weird kind of dichotomy of looking at Hall of Famers. Like, somehow, you're a Hall of Famer, which is, by definition, baseball's highest honor— and yet somehow we can still take away a bit of that honor because you didn't get that 100% level, as if somehow that means anything to anybody when you walk right. in the Hall of Fame gallery. Uh, so when I, just kind of as a personal stand, from a personal standpoint, when I realized that this was what was going on and that guys like Ted Williams wouldn't come close to 100%, I decided that getting unanimous votes means absolutely nothing to me. Yeah. Uh, and really, the only reason to bring it up is to celebrate if someone does. Like, when Mariano Rivera w- was announced with 100% of the vote, like, you gave him the fist pump. Like, oh, my God, that, that's incredible, and I'm so glad you got it because you're awesome, except for the fact that you like Trump. But, uh, oh, yeah, 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 he's a Trump guy. Oh, geez, I hate to be breaking news to you, Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, it kind of got out during the induction ceremony last year that, yeah, he's he's kind of a contributor because I, uh, I guess his church has some big involvement with, with the oh, current well, that's, a, that's a little different. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, it's not like he's out there, like, campaigning. Like, I don't know. That's one of those, well, an affiliation of an affiliation. You go, yeah. well, I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean... Yeah, jeez, uh, I hate I hate to take him down a peg in your eyes because yeah, he's otherwise amazing. But uh, but yeah, but that was that was the thing behind the hundred percent was like okay, it's worth celebrating. It's yeah. not worth integrating if you don't get it. Uh, yeah. And so my thought with Jeter is that who who gives a shit? Except for one exception, I love the fact that literally every single person in Boston will be reminding Jeter about this for the rest of his life anytime they see him. <laughs> Do you think they will or no? I don't know. Boston, of course. Yeah, but, but like the you said, you could possibly do that got it. Like if, if someone from Boston got it 100%, then they'd have it over them, but they don't. Yeah. No, they don't. It, so but, but you know how Boston runs on pettiness and grievance, <laughs> and this the most petty grievance of all. Of course they're going to get on it. I think it's great. <laughs> so, uh, forward to. In that sense, then I look forward to that. I, I love any Boston rivalry. I love it. Yeah. Uh, brings yeah. me great joy. <laughs> yeah, as long as everybody kind of understands that this is this is stupid in, in the cosmic sense of things and not important at all. Yeah, I, I totally buy into Boston, New York. <laughs> Let me ask you this then. Uh, since so in every recap of Jeter's career, uh, you know pretty much how it's going to go, that they rehash all the moments, the flip, the Mr. November, the mm-hmm. final RBI single in his last at bat at Yankee Stadium. Yeah. What is your favorite Jeter moment to you personally, like if 
did you experience a, a Jeter moment uh, that that meant something a little extra special to you at, at a game you happened to see in person or or just one you saw on TV that thought this is one that I'm going to remember? Well, I was at his 3000 hit game. That is a pretty damn good one, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. And it was one of those things where it was like every year for Christmas, we get Yankee tickets for our family. Like that's my Christmas gift to my family. So we get we pick a date. It was a random date in July. Uh, it was not like one of those like leading up to it. We were like, oh my God, let's see if maybe he'll do it. Let's go to this game. Like we just had tickets. Jeez. That was the game we just That's had awesome. tickets for it. Um, so I was there with my, my mom, my dad, and my sister. And uh, it was just one of those um, where it was like, hey, this could happen today. And then you get there and it was like the energy in the ballpark was crazy. It was just like nutty. And then because uh, everybody, everybody wants this to happen. And he was still, I think he was shy of it by two hits. Mm. Um, so, because there was either a rain out like that night before, he, or he didn't play in a lineup. Like, there was something that happened on the road that, like, he should have already done it. You know, but he didn't. Like, it was, like, delay, it was stalled a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe the night before got rained out, the Friday got rained out. And we, it was a Saturday day game, I think, that we were at. Uh yeah, it's definitely Saturday day game. And uh, so we're there, and it's like, he comes up when he hits the first, gets the first hit, everyone is going nuts. And it was like one of those things where my dad turns to me and he goes, he's going to do it today. Like, wow. he's, like, this is happening. And then he gets the next hit, and it's just like craziness. And it's like, I've never been, and then of course that game was crazy. And he goes five for five, and it's off price. And, you know, like Damon's there with the Rays. And it, mm. it was just like insane. But it was like, I've never been in the ballpark where every person is smiling everyone's happy like this is we just we just saw history and this is what we came and hoped to see but like we didn't know if we'd get it and we got it and and the buzz around the ballpark was just like unbelievable it was it was so cool it was beautiful where where were your first of all uh we were by the uh like first base side kind of near that foul pole Actually, not probably not all the way out to the foul pole. Probably mid- midway in between, like first base and outfield. Um, yeah, there were great seats, mm-hmm. and it was just like, yeah, there's something about that side. For a while, that's where I was getting all our our seats. It was like we sat there for that game, and then there's another game a few years later. We were right by the foul pole. I got drilled to the foul pole. Um, oh, God. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> um, right, jeez. Yeah, yeah. Um, but. Yeah, it was that game was just incredible. It was just everybody was just it was so happy. So when he connected with what was going to be his 3000th hit, was was there do you remember like was there a moment when you saw it leave the bat where you realized holy shit, this is going to leave the yard. Not just be the 3000th hit but 3000 with an exclamation point as Michael K famously said. I I don't I don't I just remember just being like everyone just be like, "Oh my god." Like it was just more like he connected then it was like is this happening? Is this for real? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then just craziness. Kind of like, I guess almost in any moment when you're waiting for a hit and then you're like, oh my God, and is it going out? Is this real? It doesn't feel real. It, mm-hmm. it just, it almost feels like you're like, we can't be experiencing this much joy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's almost like human, humans aren't capable of producing something that would give you this much joy. I, I definitely get that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, did, did you, at the time, did they publicize in the ballpark that this was only the second time someone had gotten number 3000 with a home run was that I think we knew either we knew I don't remember I but I know that we knew either within maybe even because it was the next day and then they're reading so much about it and hearing so much about it Mm -hmm. um that yeah I don't know if yeah 
but I do remember seeing an interview with Jeter and, and he was talking about that all he wanted was like that, like how much pressure it was and that all he wanted was it to be a clean hit because he's like, I know that this hit is going to get played over and over. And he's like, I don't want this to be like, you get the hit, but it's, you know, it's whatever's going to be replayed. You want it to be that moment. And then it's like, clearly the play, you know, and it's nothing's questioned. Uh, so, I mean, it's yeah. a home run. It was, it was oh. perfect. <laughs> I'll say a clean hit. Yeah. At, uh, do, do you know off the top of your head who the other player to get number 3,000 3, with a home run was? I think it was Wade Boggs. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. In yeah. back his Devil Rays days. Yeah. You know what, then? Yes. I think that got brought up at the game then. Mm-hmm. Like that just because he wasn't yet. I think, I think that came up. <laughs> like they put it on the scoreboard or something. Good. Uh, yes. I, I think I'm, now I'm like remembering. I think, I think, but I'm not 100%. That could also just be jumbled in as information we learned. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's a fun bit of trivia because Wade Boggs, I would imagine, is pretty far down on the list of guys you would guess that would get a home run for number yeah. three, given that he hit like, what, 150 maybe in his career? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah some of those things, like, I don't know, a lot of my Yankee memories are kind of blurred, well, some mostly due to alcohol, but it's usually like you're at the game. <laughs> drinking you know everything's wild and then it's like afterwards we usually go to like dinner with my family then sometimes there's more drinking hanging out you know it's like such a day and then the big things we'll get home and like watch sports center or sometimes they'll do the yes we'll do the encore and we've gone home sometimes and put the game on and go like let's see what happened <laughs> <laughs> what like, did we pay 50 bucks to see yeah. okay yeah, i remember like just coming home and just watching all of that just over and over again and like watching sports center over again. And then, then it was on the, the cover of sports illustrated, but you know, mm-hmm. we found where we were sitting. Cause it was, and we were like, that's us. <laughs> Beautiful. That, that, yeah, that's one you relive and you just glow every time you see it for the next week. Yeah, it was, it was awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My, my personal Jeter memory is, is at least for me personally, a lot less happy, but definitely a, very, I guess, Jeterian, to use another Sterling phrase, yeah. moments. Uh, yeah, back in, um, I think it was June of 2005, the Cubs were playing their first interleague series at Yankee Stadium ever, like ever since the first one in the regular season, I think that since like the 1938 World Series. A uh, bit of trivia, by the way, the Cubs have never won a game that's counted in Yankee Stadium ever. Not once. Really? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, they also don't play there much. Right. But you know, even, that is interesting. So, that is interesting. Yeah, yeah. You'd think that maybe they could sneak one in, but but no. So I, I went to all three in 2005 because I thought, yeah, this this is kind of historic and fun, and it turned out to be historic and uh, decidedly awful and not fun at all. Uh, but the middle game of that series was a Saturday afternoon, and uh, I remember that one specifically because I think it was I looked at my scorecard for this game yesterday to kind of just to kind of get the memories going again. That's so uh, great that you do that. That's so yeah. great. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, that's, I keep score every game because it's my own personal baseball history. And uh, okay, oftentimes... Ask, oh, yeah. sorry. Go ahead. Let me ask you this. Is there an app for that? Yes. Uh, oh. I know Len, Len Casper, uh, the Cubs TV broadcaster, says that he keeps score entirely on his notepad now, uh, oh. or MacBook or whatever, whatever note, notes thing he uses. But yes, there is... A okay. scorekeeping app you can use now if, if you're so inclined. Uh, but, yeah, so looking at this game, it, it was a 3-1 to one Yankees lead going into the bottom of the sixth. So, you know, trending definitely the wrong way. And the 2005 Cubs were very mediocre. So at that point, you kind of figured this is three innings, two innings before Mo, and then we're done at, at best. 
Uh, and then the sixth, the Yankees loaded the bases for Jeter. And this is what I remember specifically. The Cubs had Joe Borowski, who was our closer from two years ago on the mound, who was really good in like 2003, but by then his arm was shot. And so <laughs> the bases were loaded for Jeter. The park was buzzing. And I remember the count going to either like 3-0 or 3-1 and just a definite foreboding of, oh my God, he does not have a thing to get past him at this point. And the very next pitch, I remember Jeter just annihilating one. And usually you don't see Jeter annihilate home runs, but this one was destroyed to left center, deepest <laughs> part of the old Yankee Stadium. And what I remember about that, following that uh, Grand Slam, is just that sound of that ballpark. The, the Derek Jeter, <laughs> Derek Jeter. Not just cheering, but almost worshipful. Yeah. Like, if, yeah. if you could get like a group of Catholics to get away with chanting Pope Francis, <laughs> same kind of vibe. And and yeah. I remember that that was the sense of this is this is how Jeter is different, even from the rest of the Yankees in this ballpark. When he does something like that, that's the response he gets. And yeah. and that's that's when it was kind of personally brought home to me. Uh, what did you ever uh, in following the Yankees? When did you get the sense that? Jeter was, this was going to be the face of this dynasty, this incredible team. Was was there a year or a moment where you realized that Jeter was going to be the transcendent star? Oh, it just seemed like immediately. Like when those teams, when, when they like made the shift, like 95, and it was like all of a sudden, when they started to, to build momentum, I mean, they were good during the strike year. Uh, I think I was actually at the last home game. I don't, I, this could be incorrect, but I think it was the last home game versus the Blue Jays before they had the strike. And I remember it was like, things were looking good and playing well. And then like 95 just seemed to be this whole change where it was like Mattingly retired, we get Tino Martinez. And it was like just this whole like wave of like these new players coming up kind of thing. And, uh, and it just seemed like there, there was a different vibe going on. I think also probably with like my age, like I'm born in 81. So it was like that, those teams that started coming up from like, with all those guys on it from like the 95 all the way through like 2009 ish to when 2010, when guys like started sort of, you know, deciding to like drop off or retire. It was like, and especially those like initial like five years, it was like ideal. Like I was like in high school, you know, it's like the Yankees were terrible my whole childhood. Like they were not good. And uh, you'd have different players you'd root for, but you'd go to the games and it was like, there was, there, I'm not saying there were nobody, like you had your favorite players, but you know, you had Donnie baseball, if nothing else. Donnie baseball. I mean, Donnie was like the, and that was the thing. It was like Don, like Donnie baseball retiring. And then it was kind of like, who's going to pick up this mm. torch? And it just, it always, it just felt like organic and immediate right away. Yeah. Uh, with, and with all of them. And then it was like that Bernie Williams can stayed on the date. Like a few of the guys had stayed. They were already kind of favorites. And it just, it was such a switch, like such a momentum change that it, and what I loved about all of that is that how much of that was like a homegrown thing like they built this yep. where it was like there wasn't as much like hate even of course people got hate because the Yankees would pull in guys at the last you know like they could they could pull in guys with little contracts at the end that made huge differences in the playoffs um but just there they've been starting to do that with this current team uh or they were doing that um and I, 2017 was like with this whole, like, we didn't, they didn't expect to get that far and be that good. And mm -hmm. I do wonder if then they've made trades since then that kind of resemble more of like 
the Giambi years and like the post years after those teams had won, which makes me very nervous about like, I don't know when they're going to win again, even though, yeah, they're making these big trades, but they did it without the big trades, you know, like they did it with like Jimmy Key and like guys like that. So, uh, but yeah, that, that, sorry, that's went okay. Right but I, <laughs> I, I, I wanted to, to ask about the, the beginning of the era. Yeah. Cause yeah, but it was just such an, it was such an awesome time. It was like, I was exactly the right age. And then I decided to go to Fordham in the Bronx for college. And then it was like, I'm watching the playoffs and everything going on, like in the Bronx. And then I'm making like new friends. And we were like, when guys I met at a bar, they're like, you want to come to a playoff game? I'm like, yes. Like, and then we all went to the parade together. Like it was nice. It was just, there were rumors. Jeter was hanging out at bars near us, but we don't know if that was true or not. <laughs> He was young and he's like in the Bronx. So he'd come by and like supposedly he dated a girl from Fordham. Like we don't know if that happened, but it, it just all felt so close and like so great. And I don't know, I, you know, even if they get that back as a team, I mean, I won't get to go back to that period of time in my life. Like it just lined up so perfectly. It was, yeah. it was so mad. awesome. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> Maybe you want to ask uh, Mariah Carey went to Fordham. <laughs> oh man. It's so crazy. They like barely dated, but it's such like yeah. a, yeah, but it, that's, that's the thing you remember is that, yeah, oh cheater and Mike thing. Do you have a favorite of the championships of the five that Cheater won in that era? Uh, 98. 98, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. well, I, actually, then I guess also 96 and 90. 96 is something I'd never experienced before. Um, and it didn't seem like it was going to happen. I mean, they were down 102, and it was, again, like, they shouldn't even be here. They're, it's too early. Like, we're building a sign of scene, but they're not there yet. Mm -hmm. And it was like, yeah, those three years, 99, I almost, like, don't remember. That's where it got. Like, 96 is unexpected. 97 was, like, I remember being, like, devastated. Just the image of Paul O'Neill, like, throwing a helmet at the end. Like, and just being mm -hmm. so frustrated. And then, in turn, I am angry for my friends that are from Cleveland. I'm angry they didn't even get a championship out of it. Yeah. I'm like, Jesus, like, Cleveland beat the Yankees. And then, like, they, they lose to an expansion team. Like, it's, it's yeah. horrible. It's a horrible oh, yeah. <laughs> Contract uh, the Marlins, please. Uh, just gross. I mean, oh. gross. Terrible. Um, yeah, but 99, I, I almost, 99 seems just like a weird, it was like a dominant one, didn't matter. And then 2000 was cool because it's Subway Series. Right. Uh, and then 2001, then everything was 9-11. But it was like, yeah, 96 was so cool. And then seeing them lose 97, it like reminded you like, no, 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 this isn't supposed to, we want more. Right. And then it's 98 was... 98 is so per. I mean, I know it was like, I remember being on the cover. I have the Sports Illustrated where it's like, what happened here? And it's like the perfect fit. It's like a, a puzzle and they're on it. And it was like such a perfect team. Mm -hmm. But that's what I love about it. Like Scott Brocious was the MVP. Yeah. You know, like that's so crazy. Like look at that whole team and Scott Brocious is the MVP. Yeah. Like I love that. Yeah. It makes sense because the, the thing that made the 98 Yankees so special, especially in that era uh, at, you know, the beginnings, or I guess the height of the steroid era, really, that, well, most teams had that, you know, roided up thumper in the middle of the lineup, the Maguire with the 70 or Sosa with the Cubs at 66. Yeah. The Yankees instead constructed a team where literally every single part of that lineup was scary as hell, and you didn't yeah. know how to get them out. And they all had that approach where they just took and took and took until they got the pitch they could crush. And that's yeah. how they were going to destroy it. And, and Brocious was batting, what, eighth or ninth? And he was the yeah. MVP, and that's all the sense. That's perfect for it, for that team. Absolutely. Yeah. Brocious guys like Brocious like Lyrits like mm -hmm. it, it was like it was wild. Although wait, was Lyrits still on ninety? I'm trying to remember. I think he was on ninety six. He, he was definitely in ninety six because he had the big home run yeah. in uh, game yeah. four. That 
Yeah. I know he uh, was on it was already the- Posada by, by 98, so yeah. it might have been Posada Girardi at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think he was maybe playing against them. Mm-hmm. That makes yeah, yeah. That sounds right. I'd have to look it up to see if he was on the Padres that year, but but yeah, that sounds. Uh, but yeah, uh, and it's it's it is weird how '99 does get kind of lost in the shuffle, despite the yeah. fact that that is a dominant as hell team that you know wasn't 114 win dominant, but was still one that just went right through the entire league again. That was. Uh, I think I think the one thing that people might remember from that year was that was the first time the Red Sox and the Yankees met in a postseason series uh, in the expanded format. So that was the uh, the Pedro Clemens the first time they matched up at Fenway. Yes. Now, okay, this is now what I'm remembering much more specifically. So I I don't remember the World Series. I, that is '99. That's when I was a freshman in college. So I remember going to the parade. Remember the World Series. It all seemed like. But the Red Sox series, yeah, that was, I mean, that was a series. That was right. incredible. That yes. Was, and that was, the Yankees, uh, outside of the day where Pedro shut them down, again, just marched right through Boston. So it wasn't nearly as dramatic as the ones in the early 2000s were. But, yeah, that was the one thing that's, that stuck out in my mind from the 99 Yankees was, yeah, the first time that became a, a national thing in the postseason. Uh, I have one more Jeter theory to run past you here. Oh. Uh, I'm kind of curious for your, your thoughts about this. In terms of not just kind of style of, of play uh, on the field, but also kind of how he handles the media, Derek Jeter is kind of Joe DiMaggio a little bit to me, and not in the sense that he's a horrible misanthrope and prick. Uh, I hope he's not. Uh, but in terms of how he approached the duties of being like the transcendent star of the Yankees, where he was on the field, kind of a very similar player that someone who could hit the ball hard, wherever it was pitched line drives, good power. But in terms of dealing with the media, he knew, and everyone talks about, you know, his, his brilliance in dealing with the New York media. Uh, he knew how to say something and say nothing at the same time. And then let the fact that he was so great on the field, allow the media to kind of got him up and give him this, this hero image. And Joe D thrived on that in the 40s and 50s that he was a cipher in terms of personality like nobody he would not let anybody see who the actual joe dimaggio really was again because he was an asshole but (laughs) in terms of dealing with the media he would give them you know banal quotes and and you know would play the hey geography of i just want to thank the good lord for making me a yankee and the media would take that and then combine it with you know the the hitting streak and all the championships he won and portray Joe as this all-American figure and someone everybody needs to emulate and the perfect Yankee kind of guy. And Jeter very much reminds me of that just in terms of his, he knows exactly just how much to give and then let his play on the field kind of do the rest of the gotting up part for him. Uh, and I, I, it's, it's just a thought of mine, but it, it, does that strike you as kind of a decent comp? Yeah, I think that he... Uh... It's one of those things that I, it's just, however his personality fit, it's, it just fits so well that he was able to just sort of be chill about everything. And he's always, what he would do is just focus it back. Any questions, he just redirected back to the team. Yeah. It was about, I just want to win as a team. This is not about me personally. This is just about the team. And by doing that, it was like, wow, what a great, great teammate. He is the captain. He's the leader, stand up guy. And then uh, he's someone who seemed to pretty much like stay out of drama off the field or just did it in such a way that like, you know, I, 
I don't know. Like it, it never became, he was never caught up in crazy situations. Not that he wasn't going to parties and not that he mm-hmm. wasn't like dating high profile people, but I don't know. It's one of those things where maybe like, maybe the Mariah Carey thing gave him the sense of like, I don't want this to be the thing. I don't want this to become a story. So I'm not going to be doing this anymore. Like I'll, I'll date people of celebrity statues and we'll, we'll date for a long time because I'm not, this can't be another distraction. I can't have this going on. Uh, but no, the way he handles New York media is amazing. Aaron Judge has a similar thing where it's, I think it's just something about their personality. like just being so chill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that yeah. I don't think it's something that can be taught. Like you can learn how to say all the right things and you can be genuine and you can be, you know, charismatic. Well, even charismatic. It's, it's just, it's just something that it's it's not it's not astray from his personality. It's just I think him, uh, you know, I'm just gonna redirect this to the team. I'm not gonna take the spotlight. I don't need the spotlight. Mm-hmm. I'm sure some of that probably comes from you know his dad, Dr. Jeter. You know, like it's, <laughs> he's so close with his with his parents that I'm sure that and they're they're just keeping him there. You know, they were you know just so grounded that it's kind of like one of those you know yeah you're a ball player but. You know, I'm a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> I actually saved lives. Yeah. yeah. How about that? How many lives you saved today, Jeets? And, and that makes a lot of sense, too. The, the, the idea that uh, if Jeter, in his dealings with the media, directs everything back to the team, I think there's probably a certain knowledge, too, that he knows they'll play their role in elevating him. He doesn't have to do any effort in that. All he has to do is put the effort on the field, and then the media will make that happen for him. And, yeah, that, that's a certain almost – like good strategy on his part. Yeah, and he and he also is not someone that really went even when something was going on where he didn't go out and attack people. Like there was contract negotiation issues with um, Cashman where they wanted to pay Troy Chelowinski. He was named as one of the guys that could come in. We're not going to pay you. What if we don't keep? What if we don't keep you here to the end of your career? Bringing Chelowinski. I mean, that would have been just seeing how Chelowinski's a guy that gets injured constantly. Yeah. Like, it would have been the wrong move. Uh, mm-hmm. And like Jeter's way of approaching is he didn't bring it to the media. He didn't have to. All he had to do was like, everyone loves Jeter. So the media <laughs> brought the case against Cashman. You know, like it's, yeah, he does. He knew how to like play correctly and sit back and do his thing. And he was so loved that, and he still is so loved that, you know, but even that I see, like I was watching the players, which I love the players for me, by the way, I feel like when he yeah, decided to do that, it was like ahead of his time. Like now with, with so many people doing their, especially sports people. And I, I love them are, um, podcasts that like different athletes are doing they're mm-hmm. kind of finding like their own voice and what else they want to be doing i think he was ahead of his time by doing the players tribune because it's it yeah. is that kind of thing like people want to know more about the inner lives of these athletes and to talk right. about it so i was re-watching it today on instagram it was when he got the phone call mm. and again it's like you know it's the same dude just so chill he's there with his family yeah. you know there with his wife the kids his parents and he's just you know it's a phone call it's waiting to get it's just so it's you know, it's yep. just, it seems it, very much like himself, how he yeah. would be, you know. He's the perfect Peter reaction. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, the phone call is a good transition, too, because the perfect Peter reaction is to be there with the family and be chill. And the perfect Larry Walker reaction is to be wearing a SpongeBob SquarePants NASCAR shirt and be surprised that all of a sudden the phone is ringing and cameras are on you for this moment. Did you see the Larry Walker reaction? I've got to be honest with you. So... I have no idea who Larry Walker is. Ah. I, Googled, I Googled him before this moment, this Skype, and I mean, I saw his photo, and um, like, no memories come up <laughs> whatsoever. Yeah, that's... And that's so harsh, and like, 
I'm like, oh my god! Like, and I saw that he had tweeted the day before saying, like, I'm not gonna get these votes, but thanks for your support. Mm-hmm. Like, I I already like this guy a lot, but yeah. I really thought I would see his picture. One, I thought he was black. Two, <laughs> I was like, oh this oh I was like I had an image of him, and I go, I know I have no idea, no yeah. idea who this guy is, and I was like, uh-huh. I feel bad about this, but I, nothing, nothing came to mind, not a memory, and it said a Canadian-born baby. I was like, I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> It's, uh, he is the second Canadian to be named to the Hall of Fame. Do you know offhand who the first Canadian to be a Hall of Famer is? Um, no. He is a, a Cub favorite. Uh, Fergie Jenkins, uh, ace pitcher of the late 60s, early 70s Cubs. Won 20 games, I think, seven times in his career and one of the greatest control pitchers of all time. But, yeah, Larry Walker, uh, the best way I can describe him to you, he is kind of the apotheosis of a likable goof as a player. At someone, uh, I, I think the moment that he might be best remembered for uh, is actually during one of the All-Star games. Uh, it was, I think, 97. Uh, during the, It was the first year of interleague play. And he was a great hitter, if you saw the stats at all on Baseball Reference. Okay. Uh, phenomenal hitter, especially with the Rockies. Um, and that year, uh, 97 was his MVP year. Except there was one game in like late May or early June where the Rockies were playing the Mariners and Randy Johnson was starting that day okay. and Walker was a left-hander. So Walker asked out of the lineup and that got around baseball of, oh, gee, the, the MVP is asking out against the big unit. That doesn't happen. And uh, so going into that all-star game, the, one of the big storylines was, oh, what happens if Randy Johnson's on the mound and up comes Larry Walker to bats? Then we'll finally see what's going to take place. And so it did, it did, it did happen. And uh, so Randy Johnson uh, going in, there was some talk of, Oh, is he going to John Cruck Larry Walker to send a message from the famous moment where he threw the pitch over John Cruck's head, in the 93 all-star game and freaked the hell out of John Cruck. <laughs> and uh, so sure enough, first pitch uh, against Larry Walker, Johnson sends it sailing like 10 feet over his head, just uh, like a 95 mile an hour fastball. And Larry Walker knew this was about to happen. So uh, left-handed batter, then Larry Walker go, steps out, put, t- t- takes off his batting helmet, puts it on backwards, goes into the right-handed batter's box and says, okay, bring it, let's go, unit, and takes like two or three pitches as a right-hander, which he never took before in his life. <laughs> and that, that, that's Larry Walker, essentially, in a nutshell. Is he's this weird, goofy Canadian who grew up playing hockey, played like maybe 20 baseball games a year, and then was discovered at some point at a random tryout camp with the Expos. And they said, yeah, we'll throw you a thousand bucks. You've got, you know, athletic skills. We'll see what you got. And it turns out that he is a Hall of Fame level hitter. And he is. Um, he was someone who was kind of hidden in Montreal and Colorado for most of his career, which is why you really haven't heard of him until he goes into the Hall of Fame. But uh, he was someone who was hurt a lot. And that was really the reason that held him back for 10 years. But definitely a deserving Hall of Famer. Look at in terms of uh, a lot of his advanced stats uh, in terms of uh, war. I think he has like 72 career war and some of the neutralized uh, offensive stats like Ops Plus and WRC Plus are really good for him. One of the most threatening hitters uh, in, in probably the mid to late 90s so, on any team, even with Colorado. Uh, and just that, that kind of guy who baseball was fun for him. And it just made it fun to watch when he was up at bat uh, because occasionally he would do stuff like that. He was also famous. There's another Larry Walker clip, I think, back when he was with the Expos of uh, probably like mid-90s where uh, there was a runner on third and he caught like a medium-deep fly ball in right field. 
Uh, and then he goes to be just, just a mensch, walks over, hands it to someone in the front row, and then all of a sudden there's a roar, and he realizes, oh, shit, that's only two outs. And he has to grab the ball back from the fan he just handed it to and try to throw it in as the runner's scoring. So, yeah, that also is Larry Walker. And he's just fun. So now, okay, this begs the question. One, do you think the writers voted him in? One, of course, to, like, suck it to Bonds and McGuire. But two, do you think because they think it might be really boring having Jeter, like, <laughs> be a bore and they're like oh this guy is gonna make the hall of fame induction hilarious so mm. like people will watch because they're like they love jeter but like Jeter's speech will be classic and whatever but then this guy's such a wild card people will be more invested like it'll be funny to watch their dynamic there is definitely a good chance larry walker is <laughs> going to steal the show with his speech yeah because yeah. jeter i think we know exactly already at this point what he's going to say name all the teammates he played and thank mr tory and mr steinbrenner yeah. And yeah, Larry Walker, nobody knows this. He's, he's just going to be weird and random and Canadian. He could sing Alanis Morissette at some points. That could be fun. Or uh, but in terms of sticking it to Bonds and Clemens, um, maybe there's probably some of that. But I, I think it was easier for writers to get on board the Larry Walker train than it was for Bonds and Clemens. Because there are, at this point, a good number of writers on board for Bonds and Clemens. But it seems like they're stuck at about 60%. Yeah. And Larry Walker made a gigantic leap over the past few years because this was his last year on the ballot. So I think that was part of it, that people really wanted to put an effort into advocating for him. But there was also a huge stat community push behind him that I mentioned a lot of the advanced stats earlier. Yeah. And a lot of the really, you know, quote unquote, super smart baseball fans were really pushing heavy for him. Like last year was Edgar Martinez. This year was Larry Walker. And kind of the same deal that the teams, I think, really put a big effort into uh, contacting the Hall of Fame voters and saying, hey, pay attention to how great he was, and here are all the numbers to back it up. Yeah. And there were, in the end, just barely enough people that got convinced by it uh, to elect him, because he only got in with, I think, six votes to spare this year. But yeah, it was the kind of thing where, watching the Hall of Fame announcement, everybody knew Jeter was going to be named, but as soon as the Hall of Fame president said, we're, we're welcoming two new players to our family this year, it was like, oh my God, Larry, you did it! And, <laughs> Uh, and yeah, I, I definitely recommend finding that clip of him him receiving his Hall of Fame phone call because it's it's uh, getting to see this this fun, goofy Canadian just kind of emotionally have a moment he didn't think was going to happen that day. Again, in a neon green SpongeBob shirt. <laughs> it, like so, uh, one last question I will ask you here, and we kind of hit on this back at the, the start uh, as soon as I hit record. But how does it feel to? realize that the Houston Astros are usurping the Yankees' role as America's baseball villains. They never will. No one will. <laughs> it is, is our birthright. Sidebar. This is amateur hour. This is just, <laughs> this is filler. This is winter filler. I have a really good joke about it that I haven't fully got out on stage yet, but uh, uh, I, I'm loving that the story keeps continuing because I think it's, gonna, it's just going to keep helping this joke. This joke is going to be um, my joke is pretty much essentially along the lines of, uh, uh, you know, the Astros stealing signs. Like, I think these guys should be applauded. A group of men that can read signs. Um, <laughs> are any of them single? And then I just go back and forth. with like, right. you know, if you can figure out that, like, this means, like, bunt, you should be able to figure out that this means, like, I'm tired and I want to go home. Um, <laughs> so it's just, it's so silly. And there's all these stupid baseball references. But I, I wrote it. I wrote it initially, like, in November when this story was, like, barely a story. And then the more it keeps building, I'm like, 
yes. I was like, this stays in the news. More people know about it. I want to explain what it is, you know? Uh, so I'm really enjoying the whole thing. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it, this is what annoys me about all of it is that it's one of those things that it's been talked about that this stuff like this has been going on forever in baseball. The teams are stealing signs. Of course, it's very different because of the way they did it and because it's technology and it's, it's that, it's that another level that they took it to. Uh, but it does kind of annoy me that I feel like there's always this thing going on with baseball where it's like, we want to get more fans. We'll do anything to get more fans. And then every few years, there's some kind of huge scandal that comes out that somebody's been sitting on and then it becomes a story. And you're like, ah, it just creates such like a lack of trust. Is yeah. All trust of it. As a fan, isn't it? It's, uh, yeah. Every, yeah. When you feel the game kind of starting to, to blow up a little bit and it's starting to feel like, yeah, it's really cool to be a baseball fan right now. And then, all of a sudden, oh, and here comes Caminiti and all the steroids. And now here's, uh, you know, all these, these the last uh, two out of the last three champions had this this sign stealing scheme going on in, in place. And yeah, it, it's it's almost like we can't have nice things as baseball fans. Yeah, which... yeah. And, and it bothers me because I feel like it's always stuff that is sit on, sit, like somebody sits on it for, for the right amount of time. Like this one, at least this kind of came out semi quickly. Yeah. Uh, it's the way the media works now, but it's just, it's just one of those things, even like Mitch McGuire and Sosa, I always, I felt bad for them because I always thought they were so used by baseball to get people back into it. Of course, everyone knew they were doing steroids, but they didn't care. And yep. then once they like got the fans back, baseball was doing well, they just put it all on them and they mm -hmm. blamed them for it. And, right. and just, it, it, they, they were the ones made examples of, and it, I just, I was, that was, that was so wrong where it's like, you guys knew the whole time and you, you use them. And I mean, like, like McGuire has more of like a life now and he's involved in baseball, but like Sosa's lost his mind. And you know, this is a person. Yes. <laughs> it's not okay. Yeah. The, the Cubs approach Sammy right now. And they're the only team that's done this for some reason that, that they want him to, they, to apologize for some reason in order to welcome him back into their good graces and have him back at the Cubs convention or bring him out before a game. And I, I'm not, the biggest Sosa fan, like I, I feel, I felt duped and deceived after, you know, the reality of what was going on came out. But I also look at him now and I just think, yeah, Sammy could just really use a win at this point, honestly. Right. And it, right. it, it's just the, yeah. the good thing to, to bring him back and, and have the fans cheer for him again. Cause he, you can, he's defiant about it in every interview interview, but you can really tell that, that there's something missing, uh, that, yeah. that he's gotten that closure. And, and, and just from a human standpoint, I feel bad that he had. And, and, and really going back to what you, you mentioned a minute ago, the one person who benefited more from the steroids era and gets called on none of it is Bud Selig. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. He, knew, he was the biggest perpetrator of all of it. Yes. And, and no, then he's seen as like the guy that came in. It's like, no, no, no. You, again, you, you, you use these guys. Yeah, oh, I have that Sports Illustrated too with McGuire on the cover, uh, and it's like oh, yeah. what a season, and it's the, it's the, all of the stats, and and you read it, and it's what's his face, Tom uh, Berducci, who again, and you read it, and he's like, if I were to tell you this, you wouldn't believe any of it. And you're like, you knew, like you all knew did. too, you yeah. all knew, and you still work in baseball, you still have a job, you still write these like Cinderella story things, you mm -hmm. painted the picture they wanted, like you're just yeah. as bad. It's just ugh. Right. Yeah, and and Bud Selig got to be the same person who during the steroid era could claim that this is baseball's new golden age and a renaissance yeah. and it's never been more popular. And then as soon as they're, they're called before Congress, 
he gets to be the one that then says, okay, now I'm going to institute the strongest testing policy of any yeah. major sport, and I'm going to crack down. And no one sees that this is an inherent contradiction in the same person. Mm-hmm. And then he's the one who also gets to go to the Hall of Fame. And yeah. I'm, yeah. again, not the hugest advocate for Bonds or Clemens or any of them going in. I do think that at a certain level that stati- that the steroid era is something of a statistical fraud. But if yep. Bud Selig gets in the hall, yeah, I honestly, just for spite, bring in yeah. Bonds and Clemens. I'm yeah. fine with that. Aaron Andrews asked him at his last All-Star game, he was sitting and she asked him, what do you think? Um, I don't know if he said greatest accomplishment. I haven't written down somewhere. What exactly she asked him, you know, and it was like, there, here's your chance to sort of say like, well, what went on during the steroid era or how, or something like that, like to bring that up. And he said, um, it was the, it was the creation of the wild card. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> that was the yep. thing, you know, this, this thing that he's left behind. It was like, Oh, okay. There's your, there's your safety answer. You yep. you're not really address this whole thing that you created and then you brought down like, and ruin people's lives. <laughs> yeah. it was the answer that no one can complain about. And yeah, that that's perfect, yeah. bud. Yeah. That, uh, yeah, but uh, this has also been a perfect podcast, Megan. Uh, is there anything you'd like to plug? <laughs> uh, you just, I'm on Instagram, the Megan Hanley. Uh, I've been a little absent from everything lately, uh, just dealing with some some stuff. But uh, I'll be back in the groove of things in February, so <laughs> that's where you can find me now. And it is delightful. And uh, <laughs> yeah, thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it, Megan. Thank you, Ken. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>